This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. This episode is presented by Happy Farm Botanicals. Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Hi, everyone. I'm Francisco Costa. I'm the founder and creator of Costa Brazil. And to me, it's a matter of magic. Building a career is rarely a straight path. Rather, it's an amalgam of choices, both intended and fortuitous. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter, and I love digging into these stories. Brands built by creative minds with a clear vision informed by their personal journey are always the most interesting. Peeling back the layers reveals a brand that represents the sum of its parts. It lays the foundation for nuanced storytelling and dimensions of discovery. These brands have become increasingly rare. The blanding aesthetic and the iterative approach of the past few years has created a landscape of brands with made-up names, sans-serif type, clever language, who all think they're disrupting the status quo. In reality, they all look the same, talk the same, and act the same. Brands built the old-fashioned way, however, are hard to replicate. Francisco Costa, founder of Costa Brazil, has built such a brand. From the name to the packaging, and from the formulations to the supply chain, the vision is uniquely tied to Francisco's personal story. So Francisco, thank you so much for making the time to do the podcast. We got to know each other a little bit over a webinar we did on building luxury brands. I'm really excited to sort of talk more about your story and especially the background, you know, because... You spent years in fashion, and I'm a firm believer that our history usually informs consciously or subconsciously everything we do. And while most people, I guess especially in beauty, um, associate you with your time at Calvin Klein, perhaps because it was your last position and you made such an imprint on that brand and had a tremendous amount of success there, but I know there was sort of a, a a path that got you to that place. Um, I mean, your imprint was really profound there. I think I read somewhere that the company was valued at $700 million, um, when you started, and 13 years later, um, it was $8 billion. So that's, I mean, that's success in so many ways. But also, I think you're... I just wish I had a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other story, right? That's <laughs> but... where I missed it. <laughs> But I do like I remember your I remember your time at Calvin Klein and it was you sort of brought your own sort of iconic vision to an iconic brand. But you had sort of all these other amazing positions at at brands that are sort of just as big. You know, what got you to that point um, as the creative director at Calvin Klein? Um, And, you know, I guess it was a pretty seminal moment in your career, but what was the path that led you to New York and led you ultimately to Calvin Klein? It's so funny because I was debating what mattered to me the most. Mm -hmm. And you just made me think what it really brought me here. Yeah. Passion. Mm. Believe passion. 
You know, I think in life, everything is really about making, uh, you know, just making those decisions that bring you forward, right? So, uh, you know, I was 18 years old when I left Brazil and I could not speak a word of English. So uh, I think I'm doing a little better now. <laughs> Your English so is fantastic. What happened was I, um, I just had this drive and my mom had just passed away at the time. She used to uh, own uh, a children's wear manufacturer. So uh, just to get a little feedback here on the history and why then I arrived in beauty, which is a really a timeline that's so incredible when I look back. Of course, nothing was planned. So uh, my mom was like really entrepreneurial. She has very little formal education. We all come from a very small town in the mountains of Brazil, the state of Minas. And uh, she, she decided to build this company. And the, the reason she built this company was really with a social purpose behind. Again, I did not know that then. Today, I look back and I realize that. So she, uh, she opened a, obviously, it's only women because she was making clothes for children's wear, for children. And uh, so she, she would create, she created a little school where she would taught, you know, local women how to embroider, how to sew, and what have you. Next thing, she creates this, you know, a home for the kids of the women to actually go to work. Next thing, she's like distributing all this leftover fabric in all the rural areas within this town so that they can learn how to quilt. So then, you know, she was a member of our society, St. Vincent of Paul, which is, uh, you know, if you're all Catholics, you probably understand what that means. It's a community that really serves the poor and, uh, and the ones in need. So she was very involved in the community in that sense. By being so forward thinking, you know, I think about my God, 50 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, she was just so ahead of her time. And uh, again, just for pure drive, pure passion. So uh, of doing, of changing people's lives, you know, of making the community special, special to her and especially the people that she lived with. Of course, you know, it was a town that growing up was 3,000 people. It was really a small community. By the time, um, you know, I left and came back, you know, to visit, of course, I would go every year. You know, the town today is 8,000 8, people. It's still very tiny. But I think the impact that she created really had a tremendous effect on me. So, uh, and again, reiterating that whole thing, I didn't realize that until now, right? So this is a woman who uh, was tremendously influential on my career and the way I see things and the way I want to communicate, you know, my legacy. And that's what it is. You know, I came to the U.S., you know, 1985, 86, I went back to Brazil, came back again. Uh, I enrolled myself at FIT, you know, taking classes at night because I couldn't speak really English. So I would take continuing education courses so I can actually, you know, keep things going. In the mornings, I used to go to Hunter College. The smartest thing I did is that all the money that I had, I enlisted myself to Hunter College to take classes of second language, English as a second language, which, of course, granted me a visa, you know, to be in the U.S. legally. So that's a very initial story. So I, I think, again, back to your question, 
Yeah, every single step of my career, you know, is being driven by passion. It's being driven by a goal. It's being driven by uh, um, a vision of where I could actually relay my own story, be, uh, you know, consequently uh, in my own path, you know. And it hasn't been very easy, obviously, but it, it has been really wonderful. You know, it's the most wonderful journey I think a human being could have. You know, living in a small town in the middle of Brazil, coming to New York, and uh, being absolutely mesmerized by everything, not even knowing the opportunities, you know, but really feeling that I had this space, you know. And a lot of people asked me, you know, then, right, when I was a Calvin, what have you, uh, how do you ever felt ostracized by being you know, an immigrant or by being in the U.S. and what have you. And for me, it was exactly the opposite. New York just, you know, embraced me in so many ways. But again, based upon this idea of this passion and this drive, you know, made me or led me to be on the right places and making the right decisions, you know, and really uh, do uh, my job in the best way I possibly could. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I came to New York a little bit later in the early 90s. And, you know, I, I often think that, and, I, you know, I came here not really knowing anyone, not really having an idea of what I wanted to do. But, you know, I really think that there isn't another city that will, I would have been a completely different person. Like, in New York, you can recreate yourself a million times. Um, yes. And, it, you know, and it's just like anything is possible here. It's not easy, but anything is possible. Yeah, it's really incredible. I remember one of the things that really marked I obviously, you know, I was looking for this freedom as well, right? As a very young kid, you know, the freedom of being in New York just on my own, own was just unbelievable. And uh, my mom had just passed away when I made that decision to come over because I was all basically, you know, growing up, I was working at a company the whole time, all of us in our family. But... Um, and another note was very interesting because I remember I arrived in like June or something, middle of June or late May, and the first thing I encountered was gay pride, which was like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh my God, am I gay? <laughs> or am I? So I had never, I never had that, I never questioned myself about being one thing or the other, you know, and sincerely, it was really humbling to feel that, oh my God, I can exercise the freedom of being whoever I, I want to be, you know? So um, I remember that uh, it wasn't just for the gay pride, but I mean, that was such a shock, right? It was cultural shock. It was like, wow, what's happening here? But then I became uh, really very much aware because in you know, 1986, you know, AIDS was such an important thing for all of us, you know, the Reagan administration, you know, I mean, all of that was happening, all of it was not happening at the time, and people were dying, you know, and I had uh, two friends here, one was 27, one was 28, they just passed, you know, in, 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 a, in like in two years, and it was really dramatic for me, and I'm gonna be the next person, because the way I live, the way they live, and vice versa, what, what is this, what's going on here? So. That really uh, led me to uh, be slightly more vocal, you know? Uh, so I became uh, uh, 
sort of not even involved, but I would be engaging with ACT UP at the time, which was an amazing organization who really spoke up about the cause. I don't know if you remember that, but I do. you know, there, it was such an incredible moment in my life, you know, which gave me also a lot more strength, even to think that in America, such a great country, you know, you could speak up, you know, you could act up, you could just be yourself again completely away from a sexuality. It was really the freedom of exploring whatever it is that you wanted. So I think this is a very poignant moment for me, uh, understanding what America meant to me, what New York meant to me. You know, it somewhat really opened the doors. You know, the, the feeling of freedom that one could have here was really, really important. And I don't think, you know, in Brazil, one, you know, could have had that experience of course not yeah so uh very important well you know when you know i i mean i started my career very early on my first my first job in new york i was in kind of retail when i was supposed to be going to college i was running benetton stores my parents oh my didn't God, I love <laughs> benetton. my parents didn't know that they thought i was going to college um <laughs> and i did show up once in a while to school um but when i came to new york my first job was in um bergdorf goodman in sort of in the men's store selling advanced designers yeah like steven sprouse and isay miyaki dolce gabbana oh chrome hearts you know and I thought I wanted to be um, a buyer, but I was a pretty good salesperson. So within a year, I was making more money than any assistant buyer was ever going to make. So, um, but I found my way to the wholesale side of um, of uh, the fashion business, working for a leather supplier, and then ultimately ended up in beauty. But I read and I've read about and I see sort of just the the amount of kind of creative energy that has been required of designers and creative directors in the fashion industry. And, you know, obviously the, the burnout has, has been very public in many ways. I mean, it's in so many ways, it's just the business is unsustainable on so many levels. Um, and was that, did that have anything to do with you, you know, making a decision to step away from fashion? And I, I think my other question was, like, creatively, how did you keep up that momentum of having to create that many collections? Well, I mean, a lot of questions. I know, I know. So, I mean, going back to that experience that you lived, my God, I remember I used to live on the Upper West Side and uh, Cherivari. Yes. You know, it was such an amazing store. Well, actually, Mark Jacobs started Cherry Valley and what have you. So just going through, you know, and, and it was just it was just a very, I mean, vital moment. Experience everything. It was a real, it was a school. New York, to me, it was a school. Um, when it comes to um, how do you, uh, you kept going, I mean, how do you kept going, I, I made no decision to live fashion. You know, I think really was um, the decision was no decision, but it was really this uh, this intuitive uh, uh, feeling, let's put it that mm -hmm. way, uh, of wanting to do something else that I could express finally who I really was fully, you know, the essence, you know, fully in something. So I think uh, working 
you know, my started my career, you know, make $125 a week, you know, sketching at this company called Cristiani. And I remember every single one of them, huh? uh-huh. you know, then I, my second job was this company called Susan Bennett, you know, it was based on Broadway and all I did was sketch dresses. Then I got my first break, which was uh, Bill Blast Dresses, which was uh, a licensee of this one larger manufacturer, I mean, larger group called the Hero Group. And the Hero Group was, I mean, was uh, the CEO was incredibly feared in, on, you know, on Seventh Avenue, Mr. Runick, Herbert Runick, and uh, and I don't know, I I got this job there as an assistant of the assistant of the assistant. For some reason, after like a year, this guy calls me up in his office, the CEO, and he's like a real garmento, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the yeah. old <laughs> style. And I'm terrified that what have I done wrong? I'm here till like eight o'clock every night, you know, folding all this fabric, leaving this room absolutely perfect, sketching, doing everything I'm not supposed to do really to make the environment perfect. What am I doing wrong? Oh, I can't be fired, my God. So I get to the uh, to his office, and uh, and he says, you know, I just um, I just uh, um, signed with Oscar De La Renta, and uh, I think you'd be a perfect match to help with that business. So uh, again, he just signed the licensee to create Oscar De La Renta Studio. So. I'm, I'm like, what? I mean, freaking out, basically. You know, I'm, I'm still the assistant of the assistant of the assistant. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? But of course, you know, a lot of my sketches will be putting work. You know, people are seeing results from what they're seeing, what have you. So just to illustrate that I was, I, you know, I think maybe because uh, one thing of somebody not being from uh, its own country, I know my drive and again, my my uh, my goals were so strong. I always worked very hard, always. So with that being said, I joined, uh, uh, you know, Oscar De La Renta, and then later on to join Oscar with Oscar at his own company, not just as a license, which was great. So, um, and Runick once said to me, he sent me a letter uh, that's saying something like that. Actually, I, I have the letter somewhere. And he says that once a, uh, a shoe salesman became the president of the United States, you know, <laughs> don't be afraid. You're going to be great. Oh, that's amazing. About, about Truman, Harry Truman, right? So it was really like things, you know, throughout my career that I always remember, people were so kind. You know, I always had those moments of kindness, of guidance, even, you know, on moments that I thought I was just dying. So, um, with that being said, yes, I always worked very hard. And as we started engaging, you know, at Oscar, it was very civilized. I never felt the pressure. You know, working at Oscar is always like a family. I left Oscar to go to Tom Ford at Gucci. You know, Tom, um, you know, I got a call one day from uh, a headhunter, which I didn't know what a headhunter was. (laughs) Somebody called me with a very heavy French accent. And says to me, you know, uh, you know, I'm such and such. And it says, you know, at the end of the conversation, what do you do? You know, she wasn't like going directly to the chase. And I didn't know what this woman was talking about. She said, what exactly do you do? She says, I'm a recruiter. I'm a head, I'm a head hunter. 
I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she had set up meetings for me to meet with Tom Ford. I remember it was January. It was the middle of collection, show in February. And uh, I ran into the Gucci offices on Fifth Avenue above the store. I meet with Tom. And, uh, you know, I basically did a couple of sketches, you know, and I didn't have a portfolio or anything. Because luckily enough, I think all my jobs have been really word of mouth. You know, I never really had to present anything, mm -hmm. you know, but I did like 12 sketches based on uh, Clem Accardo, you know, so here you go. He says to me, well, find a lawyer because, he, you know, I love you to join me, you know, at Gucci in, in like the end of June. He says, I mean, this is just so out of place because here I'm doing flower dresses, you know. Right, totally different. <laughs> And I'm going to Gucci Tom Ford, the king of slickness. I'm so the opposite. You know what I mean? So um, I did accept the job. And here we go. I moved to Europe. And I had a fantastic four years with Tom. Not until, um, and I didn't feel any pressure. Okay? Mm -hmm. I'm just telling you the story because it goes back, obviously, yeah. to your question. Uh, I did not feel any pressure. Uh, the pressure was to be creative. And, and I was, you know, the first collection, for instance, that I did for Gucci uh, with Tom under his direction, of course, you know, uh, the inspiration was Cher. And it was so bold for Tom to do Cher that it was to my advantage fully because I coming from a house, they understood color, understood, understood embroideries, understood this and that. Mm -hmm. So we did a collection that was extremely successful. It was a breakthrough of, you know, of his career, Gucci, when Gucci was going slightly down, all of a sudden it's his peak. You know, it was flower pants, you know, flower prints, everything was printed, you know, feather jeans. You know, I did that season, we had hobo bags. They were like in all colors of the rainbow. And, uh, you know, and it was like a $30,000 hobo bags were sold that season. It was insane. You know what I mean? So with that being said, it was a great step, great, great career step. And, uh, and then I get a call. Donna Carey wants to see me. I interviewed with her in London. And uh, nothing really happened, although I really love Donna. And then so I get a call from Calvin as well, you know, and he says, what's going on here? And mm -hmm. Calvin, oh, my God, no, I can't do Calvin. <laughs> I'm crazy. Calvin's the most perfect brand in the world. You know what I mean? Because really, he exuded to me. I, I always looked at Calvin as perfection because he was perfection. You know, the man knew exactly what he wanted, and he created this incredible brand who was so seminal for fashion in the world because he spoke of lifestyle, right? He spoke fully about lifestyle. It's the sensuality, you know, what you eat, you know, what you dress, how you look, how you act. You know, everything was meticulously explained through his campaigns, the way he acted, the way he lived. Perfection. Me, Calvin, there's no way I could do this. You know, I, I like color. I like embroidery. I like maximalism. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, 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 that's, and that's that. So uh, I said no. And, uh, and then I said yes to a job. The Oscar de la Renta had um, just left Pierre Balmain. Mm -hmm. He was doing the couture, which I had to work on the couture with him. You know, uh, he called me up and says, you know, I'm leaving. Uh, and I wanted to leave you there because it's going to be great for you. So I got this amazing lawyer. I mean, still very immature. You know, I 
get this lawyer and uh, and to organize the contract. And she was very very straightforward. Francisco, you know, it would be very hard for you to make that company successful because the infrastructure is not there. You know, the financials I checked are not there. So I was I was super upset because by that time I was at halfway into this contract and I had quit Gucci. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what am I going to do now? So I came back to New York, really like completely not knowing what to do next. And uh, it just so happens that Barry Schwartz, who was a very dear friend of mine, and John, my partner, you know, they they um, they're in the same business. They both into the horse business. I mean, mm-hmm. Barry, of course, ran and founded Calvin with Calvin, but he also had a love and passion for horse racing. So John and Barry were at the racetrack. They knew each other from there. And for some reason, you know, my name came about. And John said to Barry, well, Francisco is back in New York. So Calvin called me back and, uh, and got me to, uh, uh, to sign a contract, basically. And I was terrified <laughs> every step of the way. So now, now it's a very interesting story because uh, what nobody knows is that the moment I accepted the job and I was working with him for eight months, the company gets sold. So it changes everything. And I mean, excuse my language, shites, what I'm going to do now, you know, here I'm working for this guy, you know, uh, my whole, the whole studio, I was the creative director. The whole studio left voluntarily. Nobody believed that, you know, by Calvin leaving, that could continue. You know, these are people that were very, very, um, believers of the Calvin world and structure and what have you. Not just the studio left, but the whole team that was Calvin per se, the symmetries, the pattern makers, the, the, the rooms, everybody gets fired. And I'm like, what? Am I here by myself? <laughs> Basically. So mm-hmm. immediately I had somebody uh, at the store from Madison Avenue, his name was Josh. And I says, Josh, Josh was a salesperson, a young kid, very, very connected. I says, Josh, can you please help me? Come and help me here. As you know, because if you start building this thing again, you know, we will probably work. In the meantime, the company gets licensed. So the collection was no longer, you know, collection. It was licensed. Here was a company in Italy to fabricate collection, to manufacture collection. And I was to be you know, the leader of it all, of course, was a disaster. Disaster because, you know, what Calvin stood for and the way he operated, it was very intimate. It was a community. It was people. It was a sample room. It was a seamstress. The language was there. All the patterns were there. They did things in certain ways. The culture of the company was, that was there completely disappeared. I didn't have the patterns left. Everything was completely washed. So it was really terrifying, but I took the task. I said, you know what? This is an amazing opportunity. I'm going to just do it. So I started working with uh, Josh and I, slowly building this team. You know, I remember the first time, uh, my first collection was a resort collection. You know, there was nobody in the company. And there was like one or two people in the very senior levels. I had designed a collection. I sent the sketches to Italy. They shipped the collection back 
you know, I'm talking about 300 pieces. And there was nobody to ship the collection back. <laughs> Neither box or anything. So I had to go to, you know, the store. I think it's Kmart or one of those. Right behind the uh, uh, Grand Station. I sent yeah. uh, 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 Madison uh, Square Garden. Madison Square yeah. Garden. Yeah, it's a Kmart, I, I think. <laughs> Kmart. In a very rainy, crazy evening. Like, it was like 6 o'clock. Rushing to that space to get suitcases for me to ship the collection myself. So this is my beginning at college. It you wasn't know, exactly people, what you signed up for. <laughs> no, and people believe people don't believe people don't know. You know, they think that I walked in into that structure that was no longer there, gone with the wind. But again, my passion and my drive, you know, I started getting that slowly back. I said, guys, making them understand that being a licensed wasn't really what Calvin needed. Neither was the way to go about a collection of a great American designer. You know what I mean? So I kept the standards really high. I kept doing things over and over and over. I hire, I know, I managed to hire one, you know, seamstress, hire another seamstress, hire another one. Next thing, I have a full studio, which grew up with my culture, grew up with what I did. So with that being said, the level of stress that was in there was tremendous. And uh, I never really got the, I'm not complaining. I mean, it's told as a matter of fact, and it's documented that the support that once there no longer existed, never came back. So again, you know, it was really hardcore. And that really at times burned you out. You know what I mean? So I, I saw myself in the same situations and many other designers out there you know, you work, 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 work. You prove yourself, you prove yourself, you prove yourself, you prove yourself. And there's never enough. You're only as you know? good as your last collection. It was never enough. And the most, the most wonderful thing about what we're living today is I think we are on a clock to set up to something that's really good, which really goes back to the planet, right? It was totally unsustainable. All this super, super out there manufacturing of goods. We don't need that much goods. We don't need that much stuff. You know, we have to scale down. We have to buy less, we have to buy better. You know, you have to be considered, it has to be 360 the way we look at things today. You know what I mean? So, uh, and most importantly, the total proof of how that wasn't sustainable is just to see today how retail has gone bunkers. So, you know, I think the, the state of fashion today is really a, uh, a reflection of greed, of retail, and superpower of magazines. Because you're never good enough for retail. You know, you have to ship, you know, so early all the time because you have to be very competitive, right? So... You accelerated the process of making the textile, making the collections, the numbers of collections that were never sold in its fullest. You know, having to compete with prices because it's two collection, but other people offer the same thing, especially when the big companies came in, like Zara and the top shops, they were starting to knock things off. They created a huge mess in the industry. Huge. So, um, I think what we're living now is really a reflection of the acceleration without thinking, without being considered 
uh, to the designs, you know, to the industry itself, because it was just not sustainable. So I think the clock is being reset, and I'm very, uh, I feel like, you know, um, nothing is, uh, it's, I mean, of course, it's tragic what we're living today. It's very challenging. But I think, again, the world is setting us for something that will be a lot better, you know. And, uh, and after, you know, 13 years at, you know, Calvin, and just doing and doing and doing and being blindedly doing, you know, with no rhyme or reason, just doing it because we had to do it over and over, you know, made me really exhausted, really exhausted. And I said, you know what, it's not, this, is not, this is not it. It's not happening. So I, I obviously, you know, architecture is, for me is a very close thing. Uh, art, you know, is a very inspiring thing. People are very inspiring to me, you know. Um, so there must be something there. And, and I came across this book that I really, really love, you know, uh, which it was almost my Bible. You know, every collection there was, I'm opening a Manzoni book. Manzoni is an artist. Italian artist from the Artipover movement in Italy, 1950s, 60s, and what have you, is one of the leaders of the movement, which dealt with art in a very tongue-in-cheek way, you know, uh, in a very uh, organic, where the time is not organic, <laughs> if I can say that, <laughs> uh, but somewhat humorous. So he had, he had uh, the anthology of this, of, of this guy's work is really brilliant, because it's also a lot about text. It's a lot about communication. Done, you know, highs and lows. For instance, he created a series of um, cans of, of, you know, cans, basically, in which he, you know, used to call the pieces artist. You know, he would basically create this idea of packing shit. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. So it was really like, you know, a tongue-in-cheek concept. And, and, and the whole thing looks so beautiful. If you have a chance, you take a look because it's beautiful cans. Everything is packaged really stunningly. Everything is just amazing. And I can be looking at that. Although every time I opened his book was to see the textile, was to see, you know, his canvases. It was to see the lineage of how he did develop things. And one time I opened this book and I see this other brand within. It was like, what is this? This is amazing. This is like, this is either food or beauty. And now here's our trend minute brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Shane Hart, founder and CEO of creative and branding studio, Black Box. Here's what's trending this minute. I'm going to state the obvious here. We're living in a world where our social media landscape and virtual working tools are more in our lives than ever. And it's driving a vernacular filled with acronyms, emojis, and memes. I love to use my words. I really do. But even I catch myself lapsing into abbreviations instead of forming full thoughts these days. And we're doing this in a cultural marketplace that is grappling with serious things, tough issues, full of complexity and decidedly gray. This has created a performative activism and thinly thought through solutions way too often. But here's some hope bubbling up. The deep life has attracted the attention of over 20,000 Instagram followers in less than a year. How? By flipping the shallow nature of social media on its head and engaging users in deep and meaningful conversations. 
They ask open-ended questions, encourage people to think, ask more pointed questions, and to rethink their perceptions and assumptions again. And their engagement is through the roof and active. In a time of upheaval, they're finding people embracing uncertainty. They've shown that lots of people actually want to have deep, meaningful conversations right now, but have too few places that really welcome them. Our brand should be engaging in deeper discourses and throw out the welcome map for thoughtfulness every time, not just likes. It's the right time to invite people in to have conversations with us about the things we all care about. If we want consumers to care about us, we're going to have to care enough to carefully listen. I'm Shane Hart, and you can get into the deep life in the links for this podcast. As a brand, the relationship you have with your contract manufacturer is a fundamental part of the supply chain and your success. Happy Farm Botanicals marries innovation with old-fashioned customer service. Located in the D.C. metro area, Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Their full-time in-house team works with brands from ideation to product development through manufacturing and fill. For more information, visit happyfarmbotanicals.com. Is that sort of where the the first ideas started percolating for Costa Brazil? A hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, I knew that that was the essence of my packaging. And I said, okay, if I want to do something with this, what would that be? Again, either be food, amazing packaged food, however, or beauty. Because it had to be beauty, of course. What do I know about food? You know, <laughs> about, you know, except for eating and loving garden. But um, uh, I started developing this, you know, conceptually, this packaging, you know, and I said, what am I going to name this? You so know, it started with the packaging first. It started with this packaging. It started with the concept of of high-end design with maximum uh, use, you know, everything was very conceived for, to be very conceived for eternity, let's put it that way, right? So every object that was so beautifully conceived that it had to be forever. It's like, you know, when you bought something in the 1930s, which design was really high, you know, when you look at the Chrysler, right? Everything was very iconic, you know? So, I mean, the idea of the, my packaging was to be iconic, you know, beautiful, iconic, not throw away, not fast food, you know what I mean? Not fast beauty, mm-hmm. beauty that stays somewhat. And what's the name? Is it Francisco Costa? It, no, it's not Francisco Costa. I feel like it needs to be, you know, bigger. I think it needs to have a life of its own. Uh, I think maybe Costa, 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 Costa Omar, Costa this, Costa Brazil. It just totally happened that way. Uh-huh. So here I have the name and I have this beautiful packaging. Now I am, you know, I, I finished this amazing brand book, extremely gorgeous. I have really, no doubt. <laughs> really about the skin, really about textures in the skin, you know, delicious, beautiful. But uh, it was like, okay, what is in it? You know, this is great, but you know, there's nothing here. What, what, how am I going to do this? 
So I started meeting with people, you know, I went and met with the lawyers one time, I met with this one and that. People were filling me in a little bit, but at the same time, I was still at Calvin. So nobody gave me the time that I needed, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? This guy, you know, living Calvin now with this book in his arms and what have you. A very, very intricate kind of business beauty is, mm -hmm. you know, and it's very niche as well. I think it's very much, you know, uh, uh, its own, right? So I basically uh, uh, kept visiting labs on my own. You know, somebody told me about the lab in California. I went to see them and other, you know, labs all over New Jersey. You know, I got introduced to some labs in Switzerland and what have you. And I started educating myself without making any commitments. But the greatest thing about all this anxiousness was that uh, I saw nothing that really meant anything to me because I knew that the beauty that I wanted wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Because people, I don't know if they didn't give me the time of the day, and I can't question that, but none of the places that I visited, I was compelled to say, okay, I want to use this ingredient, I want to with this, this formulation, I want to do this this way. The opposite, I says, no guys, there has to be something else. There has to be something else, and it has to be done in a beautiful way. I was so shocked, you know, some of the places that I visited. I mean, I was shocked. I said, guy, this can't be beauty. It can't be, people cannot be putting this on their faces, the way this is manufactured, the way this is being acted, and the way also people are dealing with each other in such environment. That was really shocking. It is very, that, it is surprising sort of like the perception of what beauty businesses are and what it really takes to build them. It's, it's very different. I mean, really, I mean, it's crazy. I wish that everybody who, I mean, I, stories have to be, have to be told about some of those locations. So I said, you know, okay, I get laid off from Calvin, you know, the last year there, I was very much working on my own brand and you know, mm -hmm. working, you know, I knew that something was happening. The CEO came in and the CEO had this magic wand. He was creating a new world. Right. You know, he had, he had his 2020 vision, yes. you know what I mean? <laughs> that put us all through a major nightmare because all the people that created directors all against each other. And uh, we all had to prove ourselves once again, the nightmare. I mean, the 2020 vision of Calvin, that he imagined is very different than today, unfortunately. So it's very sad. You know, I feel very sad about it. Uh, with that being said, I said, you know, I have to go. It's Costa Brazil. What am I doing here, mm -hmm. looking at labs here? Go to Brazil. I, was, I had been invited to work on the opening ceremony for the Special Olympics. So I was ready in Brazil. You know, friends of mine were organizing this trip at the Amazon region, the east coast of the Amazon, right after the Olympics. And the whole trip got canceled, and I was like, you know, I have to go no matter what. I called somebody, and they organized this trip, which I ended up in the east coast, the west coast of the Amazon, in this state called Acre. You know, the Amazon region is divided in seven states. You know, Acre is one of the states. It borders with, with um, Peru and what have you. Very, very far. And uh, I ended up going. I mean, I made this ginormous backpack. You know. I bought like six liters of water thinking I was, it's enough and what have you. And I was ready to go. It was very hard. It was a really tough trip. I didn't know. I was so exhausted, drained, drained. I mean, by the whole six months of my life, you know, and I thought, hey, I'm going to the Amazon. It's going to be like, you know, 
No, it was just the opposite. I was really tired. I was so exhausted. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing here? So in the fifth day, sixth day, you know, uh, the most amazing thing is that the tribe, the Waiwana was, they're very spiritual. So there's 11 tribes of the same ethnicity along this river called the uh, Gregorius River. And, uh, and uh, you know, one thing that em embraced me, it was how, you know, at times, you know, you, you run into a, an indigenous person, an Indian there, and he'll be talking to you. You know, all of a sudden, you know, he is, uh, he's a spiritual leader. You know what I mean? Somebody who talks to you and engages you in a very soft way, in a very beautiful way, and you learn something. Then next thing, somebody else. It's like almost be living with cats. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't repeat this. Maybe edit this out because it sounds so good. But you know what I mean? There's that kind of dance, you know? So I left there uh, on my uh, seventh day, eighth day. My trip was organized for 10 days. I insisted to leave two days before, which made, made me really hitchhike in the Amazon. It was so lucky. <laughs> this is a subject for another day, <laughs> but it's unbelievable how I managed to get out, out of that region by hitchhiking. But anyway, I, I experienced this amazing scent, you know, that I thought was just from burning wood, you know, and the scent was from Breu. Breu is this resin that was the foundation of Costa Brazil when it comes to the ingredient. It's antibacterial, anti-mosquito repellent, you know, antimicrobial, you know, it's a little magic of an ingredient, which I did not know. I did not know, and I found out later about its, its performance and its qualities when I had it analyzed. So, so how, did, uh, how did, Francisco, how did you, you know, you, you conceptualized this very, it, the packaging itself is very simple, but it's very detailed and complicated because it's sort of, it requires customization. Um, you have the sustainability story. Um, you're this guy from who used to run Calvin Klein. How did you take your idea and the concept and bring it to life from sort of an operational and, and funding perspective? Well, I mean, it's been really, really hardcore. Um, it hasn't been easy. I mean, we, I started by funding it myself. And, uh, you know, we have an, an angel's, uh, let's say we had a couple of investments from friends and family. You know, we raised uh, 1.5, you know, and uh, here we are. This is the beginning of a fundraise uh, mm -hmm. situation, which, of course, you know, we had a, um, a major uh, investment set. And, of course, COVID hit yep. and things changed. Changed yep. for everyone. Fine. You know, it was good for us to reevaluate. Re but I am very lucky because I found great adapters. You know, I, find, I found people that really believed, you know, in the story, uh, believed in, in everything that was proposing. Uh, so I have a fantastic team of people. They're just committed. You know, we also uh, work in a very different manner, which is kind of all, everybody's almost like a partner. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think uh, I have uh, from the Gecko sort of opened up that a little bit you know, uh, to everyone. So to have the engagement and to have the truly participation. So that's, for me, actually very good about it. Uh, when it comes to, go ahead. Oh, no, so good. No, I was going to say, I mean, you launched the, the business in 2018. So, you know, you really, it's a very young company. And now sort of the world came to kind of a standstill five months ago. You said that you were sort of... It, 
close to closing a round of fundraising. Like, what have you done in this time? Have you sort of, I mean, it's been an amazing time to sort of slow down. I think, you know, we didn't have a choice. Slow down? <laughs> Where? When? No, the opposite. But it and also think- gave, it also gave, a, I think, gave businesses the ability to kind of reflect instead of going kind of on the treadmill. Like, you know, Can are you, you changing anything? There was no reflection here. No. This was the fantastic time for us, you know, and I really mean it. Crazy, exhausting, but really amazing. Ourselves, you know, in the second month, second to third month was 250% up online. Wow. We managed to open with Blue Mercury. We managed to open with Neiman's. We saw Neiman's collapse and we saw yeah. Neiman come back. You know, and doing great business with them. You know, we opened with Niche Beauty in Germany, who was doing phenomenal. And uh, we opened Cult Beauty in, in England, doing amazing. We are about to open in two weeks with Harrods. And we are about to open with Mecca Beauty. Amazing. So we have seven. And an eighth company that we're opening with is Joyce okay. in Hong Kong which is going to be in January. So I think this has like been the most incredible time in our lifetime as a company. We are a year and six months old. Wow. Uh, we are very small. You know, we are, hopefully we're going to reach, you know, a million one on sales this year, which takes us to another level. But again, all organic. You know, we have... Very, very little budget for anything. You know, we have very little budget, you know, for any, 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 anything. So it's most of our efforts have been organic, have been paid off tremendously. And I think the best thing which I'm really proud is that besides our packaging being very beautiful, of course, really expensive, and I have to reinvent that somewhat and mm-hmm. make it a lot more. Um, responsible you know what i mean i think when you started you know things that you imagine i think we will evolve to a better world mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to packaging but the beauty of the ingredients and the beauty of the product i can promise there's nothing like that in the market there's yeah. nothing and uh and uh and it's almost like you know it's beauty that's responsible clean but that works yeah. You know what I mean? It really works. I mean, the three days it put our face oil, the third day your skin is like velvet. It's amazing. You know, our body oil is so transportive, you know, it's so full of incredible butters. It's really hydrating. It's amazing. It's firming. You know, I have, I mean, I'm not giving an example, but a friend of mine here from Bellport, you know, I gave her, you know, a, a bottle a while ago. She's about 78, mm-hmm. you know, and she's really out there. She's really funny. And she started using it on her leg, on the inside of her leg. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, she's so compelled to tell me, oh my God, my legs are so firm now, touch it. Hysterical. <laughs> That's funny. So, I mean, you know, I think what we have going for us really is, uh, it's a brand that's very unique. It's a designer brand, number one. It's a brand that touches really in the most authentic way, all wonderful things as equality all body types, all color types, happiness. You know, Brazilians are happy. You know, even in the worst conditions, there is this happiness about living, about exuding what's really important to life. 
So I think that's who we believe to be. And we grow, and we are, we are growing this brand sort of in an unorthodox way, right? Because it's really what belongs to that moment that is relevant. I think we have ways to go. We have to improve ourselves because we have to grow, of course. But what we stand for is pure magic. Yeah. So, uh, Francisco, I could talk to you all afternoon. We may have to do like a part two. <laughs> <laughs> no, my God, you guys are sick of me. But I no, not at so all, much. not at all, not at all. But you know, thank you so much for telling your story. You know, I think that you know, there's there is. I always like to hear sort of the backstory of how people have gotten to where they are, um, because of course, when you launched Costa Brazil, everyone wanted to know what you're doing, and so sort of the story of the brand is so well documented. But I loved hearing sort of the your story of New York and, and Calvin Klein. And, um, and it really gives a lot of context to what you're doing now, because this really does feel like this is your legacy. Like you're building your legacy right now. And that's exciting. Exactly. And I think one thing I learned from Calvin being a Calvin is really this and Manzoni. I think that's why the book was like my Bible. It's the highs and lows. Mm -hmm. This is a brand that's very bold. So you're going to have, you know, your open price point, you're going to have a super high price point, you're going to have a new price point, you're going to cater to so many different things. And as we grow, as we build our categories, as we build, you know, our, our pillars, yep. you know, uh, along well, the Well, I can't wait to see and watch how you evolve the brand. And um, Thank you. I'm sure this won't be the last time we speak. I hope not. <laughs> Thank you, Francisco. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Really appreciate it. For Francisco, it's a matter of magic. The beauty industry is lucky that Francisco decided to take a break from fashion and join the ranks of beauty founders. Costa Brazil is a breath of fresh air in the beauty landscape, cluttered with too many Me Too cookie cutter brands focused on speed to market and obsessed with quick growth. Going slow to grow fast by building a brand in a very traditional way while leveraging digital and social tools will be the formula for building the next crop of legacy brands. These businesses will withstand the test of time. That's the thing with creative visionaries. They have an innate ability to give consumers what they want before they even know they want it. They're not disruptors. They quietly shift paradigms, developing a new status quo not through focus groups, but rather through their finely honed intuition. Through the lens of Costa Brazil, Francisco has tapped into his heritage to redefine the vision of sustainability. In his world, beauty is first and foremost beautiful. It's also responsible, health-giving, and inclusive. What's not to like about Francisco's vision? So in the end, it's a matter of magic. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi everyone, I'm Francisco Costa, and what matters to me is magic. Magic is the light, the go, and the drive that we want to achieve. Magic to me is really this, it's this magic, it's this light, right? It's this guidance of something quite, uh, it's a force of nature magic, taking you wherever you want to go. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com 
and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.